Jesus. Someone's gonna break him! Oh god, what did I just pour into my gullet? I have her! I like them on my face. That tongue was huge! I want the guy to be hungry. Welcome to the first episode of the long-awaited Amazing Race Australia 2 recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Armstrong, and joining me as always is a Canadian whose video collection contains one where someone claims to be very capable in swallowing three down and maintaining a dignity, Logan Saunders. Good afternoon. And the lady who lists building things as a weakness, unless it is an oubliette, Michelle pierce Denovan. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. The first Amazing Race episode that we have recorded in a while. Mm. In fact, I realized a few days ago that 2022 is the first year of the podcast that we have not done any Amazing Race releases. Recordings, however, is another story. Exactly, because yet again, just like with the Vista Mall ones you will be hearing after this one, we are doing this in 2022 because I want time off next year. <laughs> Ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> and this is one that I have been very much looking forward to. This is one that has always been floating around on the list of the historian's potentials. Yes. Yeah, it's it's funny because it's always between this season or Amazing Race 5. Amazing Race 5, as of this recording, is just wrapping up its stint on Netflix, believe it or not. <laughs> in North America, not in the rest of the world. Well, I have a VPN, so... Yeah, I, I have to make this point every time people go, oh my god, Survivor's on Netflix, Amazing Race is on Netflix. It's like, no, it's not. It's only on Netflix in America. <laughs> I paid for a VPN uh, to watch the Winter Olympics when Jan and I were in Thailand at the start of this year, and now I just can't imagine not having a VPN, because now it opens up a lot more videos on YouTube, a lot more different things to watch on Netflix. <laughs> I bet it does. So this season was the last um, English language season that Logan saw, in terms of old ones that he'd never seen and missed at the time, I believe. Yeah, that's actually true. And this is also the first one that I have vivid memories of the release of at the time. I remember the Facebook groups in this one. And I remember how many people from this season were on those Facebook groups and giving a lot of information out. Really? Yeah. Were they in the UR team number Facebook group? Yeah, they were. Do you not remember uh, Michelle and Joe's comments or Sarah's comments, which you did respond to a lot, Michelle, because I was digging those out earlier. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Or Sticky and Sam were very active at the time. I mean, they still are on Twitter, but they were very active on Facebook at the time. I don't think Grace ever appeared, surprisingly, given some of the comments about her. Mm. I should note, should I just, I'll just get the story out of the way now. Because there was the story about Joseph and Grace later on in the season, where they were, we were trying to figure out uh, what happened to them in the China leg. And then um, I think I was chatting with Amelia, and she said, well, I'll message grace but uh she doesn't really get back to people too often so em amelia forwarded the question to grace and then uh, a, a few hours later amelia said yeah grace just left me on red <laughs> oh. 
So I guess she's kind of notorious for that, where if people reach out to her, she's she's just not going to respond or maybe just didn't have that pleasant of an amazing race experience. Yeah, at the time of airing, I think it was common wisdom that Paul was probably villainous, that maybe Sarah was a little bit villainous, that Michelle and Joe have their moments. And by the time that it actually finished airing, I think most people did not consider any of those the villain of the season. I think most people considered it to be Grace. Yep. And re-watching this premiere, I can definitely pick up on the slightly villainous vibes that Grace is going to end up having. Well, I may as well get this note out of the way, too. That first airport scene where she said, oh, have you guys seen the, the mother and son team? And then Adam and Dane just look really puzzled, and then they clue in, um, no, we're pretty sure they're a couple, Grace. <laughs> I mean, seriously, Grace, come on. You can see, looking at them, she's definitely not like, what? She'd have to be like 50. Like, seriously, come on. Yeah, this is the first of many, many jabs that Grace lands on Sarah during the season. And the thing is, I am a maths fan. I know the story that Sarah had on maths. So that comment is especially brutal when Sarah's introduction on Married at First Sight was essentially, my biological clock is ticking and I want a kid. And she ended the season by basically having to be happy in her own skin and hope Mm. that she could adopt kids because she was never going to find the perfect guy for her. That was essentially what she said at the end of the season. I was blown away. She was only 32 during the season. Yes. Yeah, she was 32. He was 24, I think it was. Yeah, that's not even that big of an age gap. No. No, it isn't. So let's just start off with why we would pick this season. This is the Michael McKay masterpiece, and it's always... Not always, because there's going to be that one person on Reddit who was giving me a tough time about this. But it's always between this season and season five of the American version as which season is the greatest of all time internationally. Yeah, I know you said this on your blog for the premiere, that I always say that 10 of these 11 teams could come back on an all-star and it would be perfectly acceptable. Mm. Not that I would ever advocate for an all-star, because, yeah, we know what that argument's like, but easily the top 10 teams of this season could come back plausibly and nobody would bat an eyelid if 10 ever acknowledged the old seasons. But just the cast is amazing, and you know what? Sticky and Sam have wanted back in forever, especially Sam. He wants back in so bad. <laughs> the other element of this for me as well is that I would say 11 of these 12 legs are really really good there is one leg that i will be criticizing at some point during the season you can probably guess which one it is if you know what the challenges are on it i'm guessing the turkey it's the stupid intersection one but i would say that 11 of the 12 episodes of this season are really really good do you think anybody's listening to this podcast they click on say oh our tv warriors just talking about season two of the amazing race australia they click on it and they're thinking what the hell? Aren't we not talking about the all domestic route? Aren't we talking about the first of 24 episodes? <laughs> we are not. <laughs> Who the hell are Sticky and Sam? I don't remember them. For the... Were they one of the intruders? We are not, because we have much better things to do than talk about 24 episodes of television. <laughs> that, that was hilarious. I, 
I know it's we try to avoid talking about the unfortunate Bo Ryan trilogy of Amazing Race Australia, but it's funny that the, for the past season that there was only one recap podcast. It was it was two different recap podcasts that had to team up together to recap Amazing Race Australia six. All twenty was it twenty one twenty or twenty one episodes? Twenty one it was. Twenty one, yeah. And I'm thinking, well, that was quite the trilogy. But please never do this again. Ever. (laughs) And it's just, especially seeing a couple of clips from season six a few months ago, and then going back to rewatching even just this premiere episode of The Mason Race Australia 2, and you think, wow, what a difference in editing. This is what it's like when The Amazing Race is not edited like a kid's show or not having seven or eight different cutaway scenes involving the host. <laughs> this is what actual competent editing is like, and introducing us to everyone. I know a lot about each of these people from this premiere alone, even if I didn't know them to begin with. Yeah, I was taking note of that too, of just how they introduce the teams, not just the individual intro bios that we see, like in, I think I think nearly every franchise of Amazing Race doesn't really do that anymore, where they don't do those individual bios before the starting line. But just even after after Grant Bowler says go, that you learn a lot about the team's personalities within the first two minutes. There's just character scene after character scene, and they go out of their way to show the character interaction between teams. We're not cutting back to Bo Ryan demonstrating the traffic jam task himself and doing a punchline at the end of it, and then uh, throwing in a bunch of funky sound effects. Here, it's focuses on learning about the team's game, getting a feel for their personality and how they relate to one another, and just how really make these characters a lot more complex too. Also, notice how we've been going for about five minutes about how shit the Bo Ryan seasons are, and Michelle's not said a word. What? No, well, you know. I'm teasing you, Michelle. <laughs> I'm getting there. It is early in the morning and I will warm up eventually. I'm letting you two start. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm teasing you because of uh, the fact that you've got to be nice to Bo and we don't. Uh... <laughs> As if he's going to listen to this. As if he knows what what the internet is. <laughs> oh, look, he knows, he knows what social media is. He posts enough. I mean, each of the final ten teams of this season are spectacular casting choices. And one thing I did notice after they were all introduced is nobody has the same relationship. Yes, we have, like, more than one pair of sisters, but you have twins and you have Lucy and Amelia, who are, you know, a whole thing of their own. And yes, you have dating couples, but you also have, like, Sarah and James having the cougar and uh, Mm. toy boy aspects, or uh, Kim and Donna having the what the hell these guys are really intense aspects <laughs> because that's something i did not remember from when i originally watched this season is how very intense kim and donna are at every opportunity yeah that's the thing i noted too is that in the first couple legs kim and donna are really intense but then we'll get to the dubai like where just exhaustion sets in and you can just see the wind being taken out of their sails for the most part but the first couple legs are definitely in it and then it's and then just that fatigue really hits them because that's another thing with this season this is a very very tough season of amazing race to be filmed yeah it's sixty-five thousand kilometers which is 
above what the US has done for years. But it's also four continents, Grant says. I I think you could probably say five, but Grant does say four. And it is really intense places that they go to, because they go to Manila, the most densely populated city in the world. Then they go to India, which is never an easy place to go to. Then we have Dubai, and then we have Cuba, which is an alien place. Then you have all the just sheer insanity of the Canada legs. Very physical and very cold legs in Canada to make up for the lack of culture shock. (laughs) And on top of that, the money in this season is a big, big theme right from the get-go. I can't even think of the last time that money has been an issue in Amazing Race Canada or Amazing Race US. I'm thinking, what, first episode of season 27? It was the last time they've really pointed out money as an issue. And the final four leg is in Beijing, which is probably the most alien place I have ever been. It was nuts. Really? Oh, yeah. It was really... Why do you say that? Why? It was tough. Like, obviously, being a, a gobby tourist here... There's no signs in English, basically. You can't use your maps on your phone for obvious reasons because of the Great Firewall. Mm. Barely anyone speaks English, so it's really tough to get around. And it's just a huge culture shock going to Beijing. I've never had that in any other city that I've been to. It was so strange. Gosh. But the massive amount of culture shock that they would have got from flying from Vancouver to Beijing would have been absolutely nuts. Yeah, well, Vancouver to Beijing would not be as much culture shock. Maybe if they were flying from Chinatown in uh, in Vancouver, they, it wouldn't be as much of a culture shock. But I think going from really lovely, friendly Canadians to Beijing may have been a bit more of a culture shock than you would anticipate. I mean, this first leg they go right into Manila. If you're if you haven't been to the Philippines before, that Philippines was my first ever experience with culture shock, and that was. That was after being to Europe and South America. That was the first time of I ever had the thought of, I feel overwhelmed right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, Hong Kong was mine, my first one. But going back to why this premiere just works so well at introducing the teams, is there actually aren't that many more challenges than any other leg of the American race, for example. But because they have an extended runtime, I think it's about 70 minutes this episode, they have the flexibility to be able to fully introduce everyone and give everyone a character moment at least. And mm. as you said on your blog, I think Taryn is probably the most under-edited person in this episode, but she still gets a big moment at the end of the episode because of the sandwich pass. Yeah, she's still mm. shown quite a bit. And uh, one other thing that's become a, especially in recent years, so even because what my blogs were all for Amazing Race Australia 2 were all 2020, right? 2020, 2021? Yeah, so you wrote the intro to the premiere in um, the end of 2019, and then it was about April 2020 you started actually publishing them. My right. God. It was that long ago? That was, oh yeah, because it's Logan's first blog where he makes a COVID joke. <sighs> oh, right. That dates um, it. <laughs> and uh, it was, oh yeah, so since then, we've had you know three seasons of Survivor where the diversity initiative has really uh, taken hold. And then we've seen that. That's one thing you can give credit to the last couple of Amazing Race Australia seasons is, yes, they really try to focus on diversity. Here in Amazing Race Australia too, when you look back at it with 
what's changed in the past couple of years with reality TV casting, that it's a, it's a very, very white cast. Mm. I think, uh, I think Adam and Dane were the, are the only non-white team. Cause I know that's been brought up on, I think the survivor sex message boards picked up on that saying it's a really good season. We have really interesting personalities, but if you're trying to look for any sort of uh, diversity, the first couple seasons of Amazing Race Australia is not it's not going to cater to that. Yeah, Michelle, do you remember the story surrounding Adam and Dane's casting from the time? Um, they were looking for an indigenous couple. They, they were, were looking for one, so they I don't know whether they even applied, but they they were definitely needing one. They said they were the only recruits for this season, right? I think so, yeah. So on on your point about diversity, Australia One had huge complaints about it being basically all white. So they set out to say, we are looking for an Indigenous team this time. And lo and behold, they found Adam and Dane. So that Mm. is the story behind Adam and Dane getting cast. And it's funny because they're the only team that's viewed as not being entertaining in this cast. So then it brings up that really awkward and uncomfortable debate of... You want to shoot for diversity, but you need interesting teams too. You need compelling teams. Yeah. It's the question of where do you sit on the fun and diverse axis? What part of the line do you sit on it? Yeah, that's a that's a tough conversation for, for people to have. You do want to give extra opportunities to minority groups or people that you don't necessarily be represented on TV, but the expenses you don't have a large pool to select from. So the team that you do choose may not really pop on screen as much as everybody else from your much larger, uh, uh, much larger casting pool. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that really, that really comes to an extreme here in this season where you have 10 really entertaining teams. And then your one, one minority team is the one team that always gets made fun of over the years for the past decade or so for being the only boring team in that cast. And it's not a problem that has gone away. I mean, we love Belgian Mole on this podcast, and Papa Virgil de Costa has talked ad nauseum about how he would love it if he could find a more diverse cast, but they can only work with who they have. They don't have recruits for Belgian Mole deliberately because it sort of goes against the whole point of people applying, so they never recruit people, but they can't really have the diversity if people aren't applying from those minority groups. So it's a thorny issue for them. Yeah, no no easy no easy solution. So Grant introduces the season from Sydney Heads, and everyone is arriving by seaplane because this season has a budget. And he promises 65,000 kilometres of travel and four continents, most of which are in the same leg. Shane and Andrew are our first team introduced. They are cops and friends from Melbourne, and they've been in sticky situations in their job and would take each other into the trenches. They are 100% competitive, but wouldn't burn anyone. And it just made me laugh how long he held the word burn. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't burn anyone. It's a good, like, three or four seconds. (laughs) Then we get Michelle and Joe, who are second. They are cheerleading twins from Sydney, born 34 seconds apart, and will be underestimated but people won't know that they are also cabin crew. And it did make me laugh in your blog when you said, just how many of these tropes of young female uh, races are they actually going to cover with Michelle and Joe? Because it's about three or four. Yep. 
because you have twins, you have the cheerleaders, you have the cabin crew, you have them saying they're underestimated. <laughs> Checks all the boxes that you always have with all, all female blonde teams being cast. <laughs> Sticky and Sam are third. They are flatmates from Tasmania, and obviously Sticky only has one hand. What? And yes, they bring it up a lot during the season, but Sticky is probably the most competent physically disabled race that they've ever had worldwide. Yeah. Like, there is nothing he can't do. It's funny that they're going to have such a strong edit to start off this season, then it really... Then they started fading the background of the edit, right when they're the most relevant. <laughs> At the time, I thought they were going to win. They were my win picks, basically, until, you know, the middle of the season. Because they are very, very good at pretty much everything they do. James and Sarah are fourth. They are an on-again, off-again couple from Melbourne with a nine-year age gap. And they've been on-again and off-again for three years, apparently. God, get yourself sorted. Which means, of course, as Logan pointed out on his blog, they started dating when James was 20. They're complete opposites and sort of like a car accident that you just can't look away from. (laughs) That's the sort of team you always want to cast, is just one who are hot messes, but know they're going to be hot messes. Adam and Dana fifth, and they are cousins from New South Wales. They will never get lost due to their indigenous heritage. And it feels so inappropriate for me to say that. Dane wants to prove to Adam that he can go 24 hours without looking at his own reflection. Yeah, I forgot about that. I thought, okay, this gives them a bit of interest because it's something weird to say, but... But it doesn't go anywhere. No, it doesn't. (laughs) We get one scene of them washing their hair after the pig detour and then them being models doesn't get referenced at all or being a part of their story for their brief run on this season. Mm. Yeah, the thing is, they get overshadowed on that by Sarah literally jumping into the water barrel. (laughs) (laughs) Like a freaking rap music video. Do you think that Adam and Dane had ever seen this show before getting cast? Mm. No. No. Just with some of the stuff that they do in this episode, I don't think they've ever seen this show, even when they're in Sequester, being perfectly honest. Yeah. Sue and Teresa are sixth. They are hairdressers and friends from Geraldton WA. Teresa is Sue's boss, and they are big fans of big hair and always get the hippie tag, and it's really important to them to always put out that positive vibe. It's funny because the last season of Amazing Race Australia went all in on this with having the quote-unquote vegan warriors. Is that, was, that their, was that their team nickname? Um, oh, were they? The vegan warriors, and then they refused to do any task? and just didn't show any major competency in line with the Amazing Race. And then here you're going to have Sue and Teresa, who are going to do much, much better and are much more competitive, I would say. It's a big lesson here, too, that that the newer seasons have lost, which is you need to cast teams who are simultaneously entertaining and competitive. Yeah. I know this is just going to turn into a roast of Amazing Race Australia's reboot, but <laughs> you cannot look at the cast list of um, Amazing Race Australia 6 and not think those titles are stupid. Just call them friends. Call them siblings. Yeah. You don't need a unique tag for everyone. This season has it, but it does it organically. Correct. Yeah, it blew my mind when they released the cast that they were just like, vegan warriors, or the really patronising one that Heath and Tony got. 
that changed halfway through the season. Memory Makers, I think it was originally, which is really patronizing. The seventh team up is Ross and Taryn, who are a quote-unquote athletic father-daughter team. In a previous life, he played AFL, but he now runs a business. Second best was not good enough when he played AFL, and she's about to move out and wants to prove that she can be independent. Basically, every single parent-child team trope in one. <laughs> why, why didn't he keep the mustache? Him and Hal Johnson could have had some brilliant conversations about their mustaches. <laughs> yeah, they don't even have to, uh, you know, you know, use their lips. Just their mustaches do the talking. Their mustaches just flip, uh, flap up and down. Um, how old is she? She's not very old in this season. Twenty-four, I think it was. Okay. She was in her early twenties, I think. Okay. I one thing I find it, I can't stand that she does is just stand there with no expression on her face. It's just really weird to me. But anyway. Taryn was 27. Oh. Oh, okay. And I've also just found their uh, their bio. And um, when Ross says he's a business owner, he means McDonald's licensee. <laughs> awesome. Ah. At least it's not Hungry Jacks. And then we get to the stars of our season, and if you don't know how they do in this season, I mean, you'll be able to tell that they do well, because we're going to talk about them a lot. It's Lucy and Amelia, who are Woo-hoo! eighth and iconic. They are sisters and teachers and come from a traditional Italian family, so obviously they're making pizza. <laughs> they do everything together, they live together, they work in the same school, and they have both ended up teaching Italian. They were also cast for season one, but had to pull out because their mother got ill, and we're guaranteed a spot on this season. It worked out well. It really did. Can you imagine them in the season one cast? They would not have done nearly as well, I don't think. No. Thank God for the salvage pass. <laughs> yeah, the sheer yes. amount of great moments that we get from Lucy and Amelia in this season. I, I mean, I cannot wait to discuss them all, but imagine if they were on season one, and imagine if Ross and Taryn were selfish. Oh. If there's any argument to be made for why the first leg of a season should have a non-elimination leg, Lucy and Amelia would would just just you just have to point to this episode if anyone is still keen on making that argument. Yeah, you know what? I don't think anyone would have mm. not given them the salvage, except probably for Paul and Steve, if they could actually have got their act together. I think everyone else would have let them through. Everyone would have let everyone else through. Everyone would not have let Paul and Steve through. Yeah. Yeah, Paul and Steve would have let uh, Lucy and Amelia through if they had the salvage pass. You think? Yeah. Because uh, this was this was this came up a lot in the discussion when I was doing the blogs. I was talking to Lucy and Amelia a lot, but Paul and Steve and Lucy and Amelia were really close during uh, filming. Oh, uh, okay. And I think that I think they're still in. I think they're still in contact to this day because. Paul, I thought I thought they saw Paul in person a few years ago. Okay. Paul and Steve were the only team who nobody else, apart from probably Lucy and Amelia, because they're lovely, would have actually let through this episode. Everyone else would have got saved. Yeah, and you could even notice the bond between Lucy and it, because now that I know, because I, I didn't learn about the bond between Lucy and Amelia and Paul and Steve until towards the end of my blogs, because then Amelia kept bringing it up. Uh, I was trying to, believe it or not, I was really crossing my fingers for a Paul for a Paul podcast. Uh, that didn't happen. But <laughs> There's still uh, time. 
Yeah, because then that, that came up in a lot of conversations. So now watching the season through that lens, one thing to note about this premiere that jumped out at me is that Paul taunted or made fun of every single team, almost every single team, except for Lucy and Amelia, despite how um, how much they are building the rafts together. Paul never, n- never taunts them or makes fun of them or you know has, has any sort of throwaway remark even from this episode right even from the get-go he leaves least lucy and amelia alone because he starts with running backwards taunting who who's he running backwards after the starting line yelling at them to hustle um it- sticking in sam who he taught who he taunts first and kim and donna i think are the main targets because kim and donna really really hate paul immediately there's a couple of donna quotes <laughs> And then he uh, he makes fun of uh, Michelle and Joe, saying, "Oh, I thought they were, I thought they were bimboish, but they're they're more capable. I want to be the only forward thinker here. I want them out." That's crazy. I mean, seriously, you think you're the only one that may have some kind of brains on the Amazing Race? Like, oh my god, that guy. Maybe he's just gone to 2022 and seen Amazing Race Australia six and realized, yeah, he might actually not be wrong. <laughs> I don't think anyone in the entire season makes fun of Lucy and Amelia, though. That's the thing. I think they are two of those people who it is like kicking your puppy if you make fun of them. I mean, don't get us wrong. We will try on this podcast. Oh, boy, we will try. <laughs> but I think it is actually quite difficult to be mean about Lucy and Amelia and it actually stick. They're untouchable. No, they're just lovely. They're just yeah. a ray of sunshine in every scene. I think that's why they are basically the internet's favourite team ever, is... The fact that they are just really sunny, really happy, really enthusiastic, brilliant confessionals, brilliant reactions to everything. They're they're an audience conduit. I think that's what it boils down to for them. Hmm. So up ninth are Kim and Donna. They are an engaged couple from Brisbane and have known each other for four years, but locked together a year ago. And that is a horrible phrase. She describes herself as a crazy, insane rollercoaster ride, and he's a rock. It's normally them versus the world. And she says, they have enough friends, they're old. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and that is also, I believe, the episode title for this premiere. Is we have enough <laughs> friends, we're old. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get Joseph and Grace, who are a brother and sister team. Joey works for a big bank and assumed more responsibility due to them having a single mother. She sees him as the man of the house, and he's a bit of a know-it-all. And it's up to her to be the moral compass. And if she is his moral compass, God help him. (laughs) And then we get the aforementioned buffheads themselves, Paul and Steve. They are workmates from Melbourne. And Paul is highly motivated and his general attitude is to step aside or get stepped on. He's highly competitive at work, in the gym, and even in his dating life. And if they believe that burning a team will put them forward, they will do it. Taunting the team will do it too. (laughs) But how can you be competitive in your dating life? Because it's not as though you're competing against someone else, like for the best girlfriend. Like, uh, I was like, really? Or for the just increase their his count. <laughs> Number of conquests, that could be another form of competition. Oh, maybe. There is no good results that comes out of Paul being competitive in his dating life. <laughs> And I understand that probably there is an element of the producers egging him on slightly to keep him competitive and get the story that they want. 
Yeah. But it's a really horrible phrase. <laughs> yep. So Grant tells them that there are 12 legs and each pit stop could see them going home. He also says that the reward for winning leg one will be bigger than ever. And their first clue is on their bags, which are really not that far away. Can I can I just say, can I quickly add an aside there that I was waiting in a different park for them to set up because I thought they were going to be in a different park, got some intel. Um, but yeah, I was probably um, 10 minutes from where they were. So annoying. I had forgotten that they did that. They did have a filming permit for a decoy park. Everyone knew mm. they were going to start filming in Sydney, but I'd forgotten that they did a decoy park. thing. Yep. Michael McKay outwitted you. <laughs> <laughs> you got bamboozled. <laughs> I did. So they then run to their bags and see that they have to travel on foot to the Manor War steps by the Sydney Opera House and then travel by boat to Barangaroo Wharf. Once there, they must choose a marked car and solve a puzzle by moving the black cars forwards or backwards to free their cars to get their next clue. And they have $60 for this leg of the race. Like how the Traffic Jam minigame, which was on every Flash game website in the late 90s and early 2000s, becomes the opening challenge of a season. It's a really clever challenge. Because it's the actual cars that they'll be driving themselves. Yeah, and, and also on top of that, there is no advantage to going early. Usually if no. you get a needle in a haystack challenge, like this would technically be, there is an advantage to going early because you have more clues to find. This one, it's a huge disadvantage to go first. Now that I think about it, I wonder if the whole purpose of this task was to force teams to interact with each other. Of course it was. Mm. Rather than be it be, have it be their first major set of interactions, rather than it being a test of, oh, who's going to be in first or who's going to get out of there in last place. Because this entire leg is just set up to lead to the salvage pass and to lead to that dilemma for the first team, whoever they're going to be. So they have to force people to interact and they have to force these equalizers in there, like having the buses be there and having them interact in that 10-hour bus ride or having them all inevitably be on the same flight unless they're Michelle and Joe and get out really quickly. Like, the entire leg is just set up to keep teams close enough together that they're going to be talking but not close enough together that it's going to be a pain in the backside. But I think they set up the traffic jam challenge and the raft challenge, knowing that people were never going to be separated too far from each other. Hmm. That rafting challenge at the end, I think that that looked to take hours and hours to do. So quickly, James and Sarah fall behind. She's not wearing clunky hippie runners as her legs hurt in flats. And she is instead wearing her hunters, her hybrid high heel runners. <laughs> Jesus. The amount Christ. of adverts for this season that <laughs> featured the hunters <laughs> was ridiculous. You go from Paul running backwards taunting teams one second, the very ne next second is when they show Sarah and her hunters and their short skirt. And Thank what you. is she wearing? There is no support on the top half of her body either. I'm like, oh my God, woman, you are so not prepared. Sarah is an absolute casting dream. And this is why <laughs> she was cast for this season. And this is why she was cast for maths. And this is why it was believable that she was going to be on the Challenge Australia, although she wasn't. Oh, she couldn't have been on the Challenge. Jesus. I mean... The maths girl who was on there was just as entertaining as, uh, as Sarah on her, uh, her yeah. math season. 
So Shane and Andrew are the first to get a boat, followed by Paul and Steve, who snatch it from Sticky and Sam. Adam and Dane, Sticky and Sam, Michelle and Joe, Joseph and Grace, Kim and Donna, who then call Paul and Steve Buffheads, Ross and Taryn, Sue and Teresa, Lucy and Amelia, and then James and Sarah. Kim and Donna really wanted the Buffhead stick name to catch on, but I don't think it ever did. No, it didn't. Yeah. The problem is calling them Buffheads then goes completely against their inevitable success in the race. If they were constantly stupid, then yes, Buffheads probably would have stuck as their nickname, but the problem is they get onto a bit of a streak at one point in this season. Do you have that saying over there? Buffheads? No, we do not. No. No. You don't. Yeah, it's an Aussie. It's a very Aussie slang. Yeah, yeah, Kim and Don and Shane and Andrew are really going to compete with each other to educate the international crowd about Aussie slang throughout the season. <laughs> I know I've said this to you before, but your interview with Shane and Andrew was great. It's still on our archive if people want to dig it out, but it's so good. They're so lovely. <laughs> yeah. So Paul says he wanted to find a car that he could just predict the paths that they'd need to use to get it out, rather than just claiming the first one he saw, which is a very logical tactic, if everyone's not being chaotic. You think with Paul that Paul says he can uh, bench press the Sydney Harbour Bridge, so why not just pick up those cars and move them? I think he might have got a time penalty for trying to do that. <laughs> he would just have to, you know, just you know, just pick them up from one side... And then just throw it a few feet across, that would be too tough for him. Uh, so Shane and Andrew do the complete opposite and realise that you have to use another team to help you, really, in this challenge. They pick Adam and Dane as their victims, but Paul and Steve are the first to escape, and their objective is to take this race for all it has. Right here. Teams must now drive themselves to Kingswood Smith Airport, and then fly to Manila in the Philippines, the most densely populated city in the world. Once there, they need to take a taxi to Plaza Miranda and search for a Mark stall where they will receive their next clue. Yeah, if you're agoraphobic, I can assure you, Manila's Manila's the place to be for you. It's shock therapy. (laughs) And then they say, oh yeah, go to the food vendor to receive your next clue. And I'm thinking, I wonder how many international reality TV fans at that point just just knew it's got involved Balut. uh, Balut's going to come up. And for, and for some teams, the balut did come up before they could get it back down. But There's only one way that this ends, and it is not in the way that Lucy and Amelia want it to. Um, can I say Sue and Teresa have already used their aura spray twice? Oh. Like, twice. Like, they're already stressed. Like, they used it before they even did the cars. Come on. What is in the aura spray? Do we know the exact chemical breakdown of the aura spray? <laughs> It depends what makes them feel better. <laughs> it's THC. I think one of them answered this question. I think it was water with some oils and flowers. Yeah, well, that's what aura spray is, yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> I think that's basically the description that one of them said on one of the groups at the time. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's bullshit, isn't it? <laughs> it's It's just funny. I could dance around it, but they're spraying water on themselves. In a hot climate. I'm surprised they didn't get confiscated at any of the airports. <laughs> Just the person, take, the agent takes it, takes the ball out. What is this? Oh, that's our aura spray. What? They say at one point that their backpacks are full of hair products. There is no way they would get that through customs. <laughs> like, this filmed 10 years after 
you still at this point in 2022 cannot take liquids of more than 100 mil with you through through an airport in hand luggage. How the hell do they get hair products with them? They're going to be massive. Also, something about Sydney Airport, trying to find somewhere to park your car, they, I think they had to go to Hertz. It's really, really difficult. Like, why didn't they just let them drop their car? Well, it, they shouldn't really be able to drop it anywhere, but it would have been so difficult for them to find the right spot. Like, nightmare. On the plus side, this is a lot of driving already. It's good to make yeah. teams drive. Especially for sticky. Oh, God, going over the bridge, I have no idea how we manage that. <laughs> like, seriously. And then to try and get back to get to the airport, he added time. Should we follow the team that, uh, that lives around here and works as flight attendants on how to get to an airport? Nah, sticky, let's just, I think we'll figure it out ourselves. And who we've already expressed an attraction to? Yeah, who we want to be around. No, this is the one time during the season that we need to separate ourselves from Michelle and Joe. Yeah. I don't think they're really flight attendants. I don't think they really have a confetti cannon in their living room. Hmm. Maybe the football team that they cheerlead for is called the flight attendants. So in case you didn't know that Adam and Dana had never seen this show before and realised that there are rules to challenges, they try turning the wheel, which is against the rules and have to return to their last spot. Michelle and Joe aren't just pretty faces as they leave in second. Sticky and Sam find a car that is just pointing straight to an exit and only have to move one other car, leaving in third. Then we get Sue and Teresa using the aura spray. Grace insists upon driving, but Joseph just tells her to get in the car. And they leave in fourth, with Kim and Donna in fifth, Ross and Tara in sixth, and Shane and Andrew in seventh. Michelle and Joe then use their local advantage to get to the airport much quicker than uh, Paul and Steve can, which is very irritating to them. Sticky and Sam get lost. And Sarah loses her hunters when running between the cars. Oh, Jesus. Adam and Dane then leave in 8th, with Lucy and Amelia in ninth, and James and Sarah in 10th, leaving Sue and Teresa spraying their aura spray everywhere in last. <laughs> and the Philippines airport flight at 12.10 has been delayed by an hour, much to Michelle and Joe's frustration, as they would have been the only ones on the flight if it hadn't been delayed. Then everyone arrives at the airport, we get the Adam and Dane... Uh, and Joseph and Grace scene where Joseph talks about the lady in the heels and her son. And then everyone's on the same flight due to arrive at 6.20pm. And then we get the taxis. The big issue with taxis. Yeah. Have you guys ever tried to get a taxi at Manila Airport? No, my husband has. He said it's an absolute nightmare. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Meeting up with somebody there is already tough enough because everyone has to wait um, based on the first letter of their name. What? So that's very tricky. Yeah. I think you've mentioned that before. Isn't there like a holding pen where people aren't allowed into the airport if you're not actually taking a flight? Yes. Oh, oh, right. That's not even that's not even common knowledge for people. Yeah, you can't you can't enter any airport in the Philippines unless uh, you're departing on a plane. So you have to show your the proof of your boarding pass, or if you don't have your boarding pass now, just proof that you will you're about to have a boarding pass, and then they let you inside. So you can't just go inside the airport to say goodbye to somebody. You can only say goodbye to them outside of the airport. Oh. So they always yeah, there's always security to to confirm you have a boarding pass. Then they let you inside the airport, and then when you arrive, no one can meet you inside the airport. They have to wait. Especially in Manila, it's a an area far away, lots of walking before you get there. Maybe not lots, but 
more than you would expect to an area where it's just crowds of people that are sorted based on letters. So say if your first name starts with the B, you have to wait in the A to C area. And so everyone's just all sorted based on that way. And the fun part is when I would go there to meet Jeanne, Jeanne's about four foot 11. So to pick her out from a crowd of about 30 or 40 people all waiting in the, in their little box there, she would, she had to keep jumping and yelling out my name to get my attention. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then from there we would, uh, we used the grab, which is the equivalent of Uber there because that's in a separate area too. And then you get in there. And then to try and hail a cab is also, it's just really chaotic there, especially the first time when it was just me going into Manila solo when I hadn't even met Jian yet. Just trying to figure out the cab is really intimidating there. So when teams get to the Plaza Miranda and find the marked food stall, they're shocked by the fact that it's an eating challenge. And each team has to eat eight balloots, fertilized duck embryos, to receive their next clue. Eight is a lot. It like, is a lot. A lot. The vegan warriors would have quit right here. Uh, yep. They quit over a tannery task. Of course they'd quit right here. Well, could you imagine? You imagine production going, Jesus, they're quitting before we've even begun. How would you have done with Balut, Michelle? Um, look, I had an opportunity in Sydney to eat one on a race about two months ago. But then one of my teammates took one for the team and just shoved the whole thing in his mouth at once. So we didn't have to do it. I was ready to do it. I said, as long as he hands it to me with my eyes shut so I don't have to look at it, I'll just eat it. I mean, I would have been terrible with it. Even as a meat eater, I would have been terrible with this sort of stuff. Yeah. I would have had to do it, but I wouldn't have been happy about it. Oh, not happy. No, Jesus, not. (laughs) I mean, there are certain teams who absolutely chow it down but that would not be me no no me neither uh so the other michelle is a very picky eater and struggles immediately joe says it's not the taste of the problem but the texture of the balut and in case you (laughs) didn't notice there is a really subtle hint with michelle and joe that this season may be sponsored by pump water given that it features rather prominently on all their tables (laughs) and Mm. they are swigging it down the best way to get down balut. <laughs> get down those fertilised duck embryos with pump. <laughs> Donna is allergic to eggs, so Kim has to eat all eight for his team, which is, you know, really rank for him, that. It's a real Bruce Bogtrotter moment. Paul knew what balut was being half Filipino, but he's never had it. It tastes just like a chewy egg, apparently. He hasn't even met all his cousins. And he thought upon meeting them that Donna might be a dominatrix and Kim might be a slave. God. Family-friendly <laughs> television, this. <laughs> oh, God. Steve then sets the pace and chows down, motivating Paul, and they are the first to leave. And teams must now sign up for one of three charter buses leaving 30 minutes apart to the town of Daraga, 10 hours away, and find a snake charmer outside of the Kaksawa ruins to get their next clip. That would have been longer than a 10-hour bus ride. I, I just I looked it up on Google Maps again. It says that from Manila to Duraga, it's ten. it would be 10 hours if you're driving in a regular car. But I don't think they're accounting for the ridiculous traffic and poor road conditions. So I, I, I'm guessing that bus ride was more like 12 or 13 hours. It's not an ideal way to spend your time. 
Especially with a bunch of people who just ate balut eggs. <laughs> but I think that's their sleep, isn't it? That's oh, yeah. Their, that's their sleep time. God. If you can't sleep on a bus, you're just going to be totally rooted. <laughs> so Sticky and Sam then have a problem with their taxi. As the fare slightly goes up a bit, they have 2,000 pesos to spend for the entire leg of the race, and they spend it all on their taxi. Yeah, they got scammed big time. I think I covered in my blog, too, where we figured out the price of the what it should have been. Well, Lucy and Amelia themselves said 140 pesos. Even then, that's on the higher side of things. So the fact that, that that's considered high and Sticky and Sam paid 2,000 pesos for a ta- taxi cab ride. And the, I think the driver was also pretending not to speak English all that well because it looked like he was intentionally misunderstanding what Sticky and Sam were trying to say. Because that's a tactic, too, I've, I've learned from my travels. <laughs> of course he was. He gets loads of money out of the stupid tourists. <laughs> yeah. So Amelia says that Belus is her worst nightmare, and Lucy tells her to think of bad Thai food. Because that's so much better. <laughs> Kim and Donna leave in second, with Ross and Taryn in third, and he says that she was very capable of swallowing three down and maintaining her dignity. Which is the sort of thing that I would love to hear from my own father. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph and Grace leave in fourth with Adam and Danny in fifth and Shane and Andrew in sixth and Teresa says that she's a member of Greenpeace and WWF and only donates to anything to do with animals or the environment so she hopes that the universe will forgive them for doing this challenge Now I didn't peg her to be the type to donate to Vince McMahon and The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin but hey, any cause, right? I think that reference is so old that it was actually probably less time between when they actually changed the name and this season airing for the first time, than it was now. (laughs) (laughs) WWF, come on. It'll always be wrestling to me, damn it. Lucy and Amelia then leave in seventh, and Lucy shushes Amelia for talking about it in the cab. Sue and Teresa leave in eighth, with Sticky and Sam in ninth, and James and Sarah in tenth, leaving just formerly first place Michelle and Joe in last. I got nervous seeing Sticky and Sam being forced to ride on the back of a jeepney since that's by far the cheapest form of transportation to get around the Philippines. And I've been told repeatedly, do not ride a jeepney in Manila. Because you will die. Yeah, there's a a non-zero chance. But yeah, they had to do it. They didn't have any money, so onto the back of a jeepney through Manila, they had to go. But first they get brushed off by James and Sarah. Yeah, they they got rejected out of that alliance. I guess this isn't season 32. All they had to do was just say the word sauerkraut and it would have been an immediate alliance. (laughs) Oh my god, no one's going to understand what you're talking about. (laughs) We put warnings on the Historians episode so that things from previous seasons can be covered. It's fine. You know what's funny though? About half an hour before we podcasted on 15 Minutes, I had to write the word sauerkraut and I'm like, Jesus, I can't remember how to spell this. I went to Google, and here it is. So Kim and Donna are the second on the first bus after Paul and Steve, and in a foot race, Adam and Dane beat out Joseph and Grace. Shane and Andrew's driver's quote-unquote shortcut is actually a long cut, and takes them a bit longer than anticipated. Ross and Taryn are second on bus number two, with Lemelia in third and sticking Sam the last ones, ahead of James and Sarah, which might be a little bit of karma. First of many bad taxi rides for Shane and Andrew. 
Sue and Teresa then arrive first with bus number three with James and Sarah in second. And the first bus departs with Paul and Steve gloating, Adam and Dane trying to get some sleep, and Donna seemingly riding Kim as he's trying to sleep. Don't know whether you guys caught that. Yes, I did, because I caught it the first time. <laughs> you didn't mention it in your blog, which was one of the reasons I was checking your blog, but... Um, I didn't. I was waiting for that, because I thought that was mildly amusing for me. Yeah, I don't think you put it in your blog, but... Um, yeah, they they end up sharing one seat from what we see. <laughs> God. So not only is it bad enough them trying to get some sleep, but they're probably having to deal with Kim and Donna riding each other in the uh, in the bus. Maybe she had like her legs against the seat behind her to you know to make it more comfortable. Yeah, maybe. It's just like dogs sleeping in certain awkward positions. Maybe that's just how Donna sleeps. She has to be sleeping lying on top of Kim at all times. Okay. So Michelle and Joe then finally finish the balloots with a cry from the audience of "Go, Super Twins, go!" And they are told that the last charter may not wait for them. And Shane and Andrew arrive third for the last bus, with Michelle and Joe in last. When they get to the ruins, they don't actually know that it's a snake jammer at that point, so someone does end up going, oh, snakes! Second time that the vegan warriors would have quit. And it is a detour, which is the Amazing Race Asia classic, pig or jig. The third time that the vegan warriors would have quit this thing. <laughs> and in pig, teams must catch and deliver four oily pigs from a mud pit to get their next clue. And in Jig, teams must learn and perform the traditional fiesta dance and impress the judges to get their next clue. A dancing task? All we needed now was Grant Bowler to channel his inner John Montgomery and just try out the Jig task for us. Because that <laughs> would have been hilarious. All the pigs. Mind you, the pigs aren't oily. They're muddy. Why do they call them oily when they're muddy? Because the teams themselves are oily. In the first of at least two deeply inappropriate tasks for siblings to be doing in this uh, season. They do have to oil each other up if they're doing the pig challenge. The other one is the uh, the hammam in uh, Turkey. So, oh, yes. With the yes. soap. God. <laughs> the father and daughter. Yeah, with the soap. <laughs> <laughs> so Donna is an aerobics instructor, so dance is an obvious choice for them. Steve goes for the midsection, gets a pig, and then the pig escapes. Paul says that they weren't too keen to get cuddled by some Australians. I like how Paul decides to, for no reason at all, taunt Adam and Dane here during the pig-catching task to intentionally cut them off from catching a specific pig. He's such a prick. And I know he's just doing it because that's how he's been cast, and he's just deliberately trying to get airtime and all that sort of stuff, and he can't help himself in competitive situations, which I get. But he's just so unnecessarily arseholeish to people. <laughs> and despite how they finish by the end of this leg, this is the third task that Paul and Steve finish in first place. Yeah. If you didn't have a a hint of Paul and Steve actually being pretty competent on this race, they do really well in this leg, apart from a building a rep. And interestingly, something else I noticed is as the theme of this season seems to be cutting things out of the episodes, we only see about half of the big captures. There are some teams who go from one to four in this challenge. Mm. We didn't need to see all, every single pig no. being caught, though. They take a it, long time. We didn't, but it's a hint of what's to come, especially in the next two or three episodes where half of the challenges get removed from the edit. Yeah, we'll have to cover that in the coming weeks. Oh, and Sarah. Sarah diving. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. We've got a little bit more to do first. <laughs> so Adam also manages to pounce on a pig, and they get one out for two. Paul gets a second one quickly, and then Kim and Donna decide to break the Michelle Pierce-Denovan rule of switching detours and switch to pig. Dane and Paul then enter the pig pen at the same time. We don't see Steve get their third one. And Paul tries to snatch a pig from under Dane, quote-unquote, unintentionally colliding with him. He gets their fourth, and they leave the detour in first, with Adam and Dane in second. Teams must now travel by marked jeepney, obviously, to Miss Bay to find their next clue. Adam and Dane then fall behind the boys, because Dane insists on washing all the mud off him, like he's in the I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here shower. And Donna says she grew up with livestock and was afraid of pigs, as they would bite her. She gets their first one, with Kim not having much difficulty either, and the second bus arrives and everyone picks pig again. Amelia says that she's only picking pig if they don't have to eat it too. <laughs> Stick a fork in a live pig. Yeah, that would be a pretty sinister aspect to this challenge. Right, we've got Jig or Pig. We used it in Amazing Race Asia. How can we evolve it? Um, <laughs> bacon sandwiches? Yeah. yeah. Let's then take them to Miss Bay and just one of the pigs that they caught was just rotating on the spit. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. It's like the Lord of the Flies parody from The Simpsons. That's certainly one way to make this challenge even harder for people. How was the slime, <laughs> Sue and Teresa? How was the slime? Ah, shut up. <laughs> Can I say, that mud would have smelt horrendous. Oh, because... God, it would have been awful. Like the little race that I did last week, Foam Fest, it's actually run at an equestrian centre. So if you are later in the day, you don't want to do it because the mud starts smelling like horse poo. So you do it right at the beginning of the day because you seem to be okay at that time. But I was just thinking, oh, my God, the smell of that mud. It's something now I know, but back then I didn't even think about it. But, God. Damn, it would have been disgusting. They must have hummed. Imagine ten teams all on Miss Bay's beach, trying to build a raft for being hot and sweaty anyway, and then just stinking of pig poo. I was yeah, I was thinking the pen itself, it would have been forty pigs in there, along with twenty unshowered Australians. And Sarah didn't have real clothes on. Like I'm coming from a woman's point of view. That bottom half of her body needed to have protection. There was nothing there. Oh, my God. When I say the Hunters were part of pretty much every advertising campaign of this season, so was Sarah diving for the pig. (laughs) The amount of times that people watching Seven saw Sarah's blown out arsehole is amazingly high. They would never do that now. Ever. No, we would just have to see Bill Ryans instead. And then to jump into that vat, like, seriously, I'm thinking, oh my god, you need antibiotics now. Just just now. So Ross gets the first pick of the second bus with Sticky close behind, and Sam then gets their second. And Taryn hasn't played tackle sports before, so Ross is giving her a little bit of encouragement. <laughs> it's just the way that Ross speaks about Taryn. A lot of the things that he says are so unintentionally inappropriate for a father to say about a daughter. Like, I don't think he said the she chowed three down and kept her dignity thing with any hint of irony or any yeah. hint of how people would actually hear that. 
Yeah. But it's delightful. It's just wonderful casting. <laughs> Sticking Sam the leaving fourth with Joseph and Grace. Not so much. Ross and Taryn leaving fifth. Then we get a really uncomfortable scene, actually, that I'd forgotten about, which is Grace trying to just catch the pigs and, I don't even know, just lying in the mud pit. Just kind of flopping and giving up. Yeah. And they end up leaving in sixth. And when teams arrive at Mispis Bay, they find out that the challenge is the final active route info of the leg, which is building a raft, boys. Once their raft is built, they will need to paddle it to Mossborough Beach, the pit stop for this leg of the race. The last team to arrive may be eliminated. Third bus arrives when Michelle and Joe and Sue and Teresa both pick Jake. Catching oily pigs is, however, right up Shane and Andrew's alley. Michelle and Joe's dance teachers have always taught them the two main things about dancing are tits and teeth, so that is their tactic. And when they started adding their own bit of flair, that is when they stuffed it up and the judges hated them. Yeah, the judges did not have much of an expression on their faces. <laughs> they were so nonplussed by anything that Michelle and Joe were doing. And bear in mind, next week we're probably going to be talking about the Confetti Cannon intro. I love Michelle and Joe's intro. It's one of my favourite title shots of all time. <laughs> and that is like primo tits and teeth behaviour, that intro shot. They know what they're doing. Just the judges don't care for it in this challenge. Lucy and Amelia then get their fourth pig and leave in seventh with Shane and Andrew in eighth. And when Sarah dies for a pig, the crowd will get a little more than they bargained for as she is wearing just a raw raw skirt and her G-string. And they do leave in ninth. That's just iconic. It's just iconic, isn't it? Like, <laughs> top three amazing race memories is, it's just there. So she then dives into the big barrel of water as she got mud everywhere. And by everywhere, I mean everywhere. <laughs> yep. It's like she was pretending like she was in a jacuzzi in a music video. <laughs> and then Michelle and Joe switch to pig after getting a bit frustrated with the uh, the dance challenge. Joe struggles, so Michelle shows her how it's done, but then Joe cannot grab a pig. Adam and Dana are the first to put their raft in the water, and seeing them there makes Paul and Steve panic. And then we get a storyline that I'd completely forgotten about, which is Kim and Donna being very gung-ho about paddling. Apparently they love to paddle. Yeah, I'm not sure whether that is paddling in the sense of what Paul and Steve thought they got up to in their uh, dating life, or whether that is paddling as in rowing. Mm. But the amount of times that they say they're really into paddling, I, I think Paul may have had a point there. Paul and Steve then put their raft in and immediately sink. And then Michelle and Joe leave in 10th, making it do or die for Sue and Teresa. And they end up having to pick one of Grant's three boxes to try and save themselves from elimination. They get the aura spray out, and producers just say yes to keep them from being too far behind. <laughs> it's one of the more egregious examples of what we assume with dance challenges of the producers get a little bit more lax on the approvals the later in the day it gets. They are not in sync when they get that approval. No, Sue and Teresa, no way. <laughs> that was a fake it till you make it moment. Their last move is a good five seconds apart from each other. And it's really, really funny to me. It's like, oh yeah, you're the only ones who completed this today. And it's like, really? <laughs> that was the best today? Given professional dancers were involved in this challenge, that was the best that anyone did? Yeah. And the other thing that amused me is that teams have obviously been told that they need to change into their swimsuits before they get out of the jeepney. 
Ross and Taryn's tactic is to build a raft that won't actually sink, take their time and do it right. Kim and Donna and Paul and Steve launch their creations while Adam and Dana are only 100 metres from the pit stop, and Grant can actually see them. Yeah, when they recheck in, Grant says, <laughs> you, you blokes had to do it twice. Wouldn't you have held on? I mean, he said that this something was coming apart and he was holding it together pretty well. Wouldn't you have just held it until you got to him and then let it fall apart? Like, it wasn't physically falling apart when he said it's falling apart. There was a boat alongside them. So I have a suspicion that there may have been a producer on that boat going, no, you're half sunk, you need to go back to the start. Mm. There was a green boat, I think it was, that was sailing very close to them. So there must have been someone shouting, no, go back. That's my suspicion on that, because yeah, you're right, Adam and Dane probably could have held on a little bit longer than they actually did. Mm. And Ross and Taryn were the fourth team to actually put their raft in the water, but now they have to just try and be successful. Paul and Steve's raft disintegrates, and Kim and Donna say they're pretty powerful paddlers, and their raft was good for strength, but not for speed, allowing others to overtake them. Ross and Taryn have a very good tactic of just doing big strokes for 10 to try and get some momentum, and he wants to prove that at 55 he can mix it up with the youngsters. Which I'm sure Michelle really appreciated that comment. Oh god, yes. <laughs> Ross makes it sound like he's like on death's door. By yeah, <laughs> it makes it sound like he's like 70. <laughs> I'm so old at 55 years of age, I just want to keep up with these youngsters. <laughs> mm, Jesus Christ. I want to keep up with these youngsters like Kim and Donna. <laughs> yeah, Kim and Donna are, are not that much younger than Ross, I think. <laughs> no, I think they're yeah. like, I think they were yeah, like five years younger than him. That's it. I think they were in their late forties. Yeah, I thought there was forty forty nine. Yeah, so Kim was forty six and Donna was forty two. Oh, there you go. Paul and Steve then have a bit of an argument about Paul wanting to give up. And he wants to either take a penalty or reset the challenge. And in Lucy's opinion, you should just put tiles or slates down at the beach. She hates sand. <laughs> Woman after my own heart. I hate sand too. Kim then starts a sentence with, from my experience in paddling, and it's like, we know you paddle. Shut up. Ross and Taryn overtake them to come in first. And for winning this leg of the race, they win $10,000 cash and another equally valuable prize, the salvage bass. They can either use it to gain one hour at the start of the second leg, or they can save the last team to arrive. And they have until, let's be honest, Lucy and Amelia arrive to make the decision about what they're doing. The second team to arrive is Kim and Donna. Michelle then accuses Joe of fake rowing. (laughs) Andrew has a brainwave and they lie on their raft because of their weight. Paul and Steve then decide to reset the challenge. James and Sarah come in third, with Sue and Teresa in fourth, Sticky and Sam in fifth. Josephine Grace in 6th, and Michelle and Joe in 7th. Lucy and Amelia say that it's all about getting to the pit stop and not giving up, and they reread the clue and realise that it doesn't say anything about getting help to build the raft. They find a local to help them do it, and Paul and Steve spot them doing that, but Paul thinks that they're just packing up and going home. Which is a weird thing to think. Yeah, they're just packing up. (laughs) Like, seriously. You said on your blog that if they did that, they got a penalty, Logan. But I don't think they say that in the episode. That the, yeah, I was like, I wonder why I said that in my blog then. Yeah, I don't they know. Weren't allowed that had to come from somewhere. Yeah, I wasn't sure whether you had any inside information on that, because it's never actually stated in the episode that if you ask a local for help, you do get a penalty. 
because it was about to get dark, so I don't know if that influenced production to say, hey, you can't ask for help now. I feel like that might have been more of an Amelia thing. Yeah. Also, if both of the final two teams out there got a penalty for asking locals to help, it would have got cut because it won't have made any difference. Mm-hmm. But I do actually suspect that production may have put some locals out there to help them, given how dark it was getting, because sunset at that time of the year when they filmed was about six o'clock, I think. It's always six o'clock. <laughs> six o'clock is always sunset there. I know we looked this up when we were doing uh, the Hong Kong Philippines episodes, but I think it was about six o'clock, uh, between about half five and six o'clock sunset. So they would have been out there for, assuming the bus time was was accurate in terms of it being 10 hours from them leaving at, what, 12.30. They would have been on the race course just on this half of the leg for, let's be honest, eight hours at that point. Seven, eight hours. They yeah. must have been shattered. And you don't want to be in the water at that time. I mean, I don't know what sharks are like around there, but you don't go in the water at all in Australia at dusk unless you want to get taken. You know, it's the time. And I'm think I'm thinking, Jesus, why are they out at night time? So the Australian in me is going, get out of the water. I don't know who you shark. <laughs> I was waiting for Liam Neeson. But I will find you and I will kill you. That's the inner monologue of a shark there. So Shane and Andrew checking in eighth with Adam and Dane checking in ninth after those blokes doing it twice. <laughs> Your blokes did that twice. See, I don't understand how people can hate Grumbler. He's so deadpan funny with some of these comments. I will be championing Grant a lot during this season because I do love him dearly, but I don't understand how anyone can think that he's a boring host. He's very dry and very funny with people. So when Lucy and Amelia put their raft in the water, Paul and Steve realise that they got help, and Paul then runs to get help from a local as well, and Amelia feels that that is fair. Paul and Steve get in the water last, but begin to catch up, and do check in in 10th, with Lucy and Amelia checking in in last. Grant informs them that it is a predetermined elimination leg, but there is a chance that they could still stay in the race. And Ross and Taryn emerge from the darkness. (laughs) Who's that? Who could it be? It's John Cena. I think Lucy and Amelia thought when they were appearing from the smoke that Ross and Taron were quitting. Ross and Taron were going to be like, we've got an injury, so you're going to take our place in the race. Oh, I'm 55 year old, years old. I don't know why I signed up for this. <laughs> I think that explains their reaction because I think it's Amelia gets a bit tearful when she sees that anyone is walking through the fog. And she's like, oh shit, they're <laughs> quitting, aren't they? Oh, are we going to get a second chance out of this? And then, obviously, Taron completely dead-faced. And Grant explains to Twist going, oh, they won the salvage pass. They can either give themselves an advantage or give you one. And then he gets them to do a pitch. Why should you stay in this race? And Lucy and Amelia are just like, yeah, I don't know, really. Do it if you want. (laughs) It is the most non-committal pitch in anything like this ever. (laughs) They were so taken off guard and very unprepared for this twist. It's so funny. It really it really tickled me how badly they pitch. So bad. I wish that if the team decided to just use the one hour head start for the salvage pass, that instead they just pushed the eliminated team into the water saying, we've decided that you guys are out. Bye. <laughs> if they'd arrived any earlier, what you couldn't see is behind Grant, there was a set of two planks and Ross and Taron would have got to either push a button to... Uh, to release them into the, let's be honest, Shark and Liam Neeson infested waters. 
<laughs> or um, or just tell them to walk off the plank because they're still in the race. So yeah, Ross and Taryn return to the map. Grant explains the twist, and he tries to get them to pitch to Ross and Taryn, but they basically say whatever happens, happens. And obviously Ross and Taryn save them, because they're not Paul and Steve. And that is the end of the episode. Yep. What a premiere. So next time, teams fly to Delhi, a Bollywood extravaganza test teams, there are cows that need a milking, James and Sarah unravel, and someone's race is cut short, as Grant cannot check them in. What a premiere indeed. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten how fun this premiere is. It's a long episode, obviously, acutely aware of the fact that Logan's got a jab in 10 minutes, but it is a very enjoyable premiere, and we know so much about each of these 11 teams just off the back of this premiere alone. Yep. And next week, the real fun begins because they're off to India. I can't believe they go so quickly from one country to another. We're just not used to seeing it now. No, because there's not a private jet that flies in between them, Michelle. (laughs) Have you guys got anything else you want to say about this premiere? Nope. It was a great episode. Yep, it was indeed. So, thank you for listening to our Amazing Race Australia recap. We'll be back next week to recap episode number two. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, where we are RTB Warriors. Or you can email us and contact us at rtbwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at Logs of Quacky. Michelle is Beth333333. And I'm MJ Helmstone. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rtbwarriors. See you next week. Bye. Peace out and just chill till the next episode. But we wouldn't burn someone.